Well, I pray you have been blessed through our time of worship. I appreciate Pastor Dan and our choir leading us in God-exalting, Christ-centered songs of worship. And uh, that has prepared our hearts as we now turn to God's Word. We're going to take a pause from our study in Colossians for a couple of weeks as we enter into Holy Week. Today we'll focus our attention on Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry. And then, of course, next week uh, we want to take the opportunity to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we look forward to that time together as well, as well as the services that we'll have through the week. Remember, on Thursday we'll have a special communion service and a message, a time of worship and message on the dreaded cup that Christ drank in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then uh, Friday our special service at the Majestic Theater, which I'll say more about later. But today we want to turn our attention to Luke chapter 19, and so the title of the message today is Blessed Be the King, and we will read from the Gospel of Luke chapter 19 beginning in verse 28. And I'll ask you to stand with me as we read the Word of God together. The Scripture says, And and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. King Charles III who is now the sitting king of England awaiting his coronation, will be coronated on May 6, 2023. The last time that there has been a coronation of a royal king or queen in England was in 1953 for Queen Elizabeth. Her royal procession through the streets of London included 16,000 participants. And it took 45 minutes to pass a route of 4.3 miles with all the pageantry and all the coaches, carriages, and so on. 
When it comes to May the 6th, there is no doubt that it will be a memorable event. And the reason why is because coronations have remained the same, at least for England, for over a thousand years. So, given social media and other opportunities, you'll be able to see what has been traditions for literally a millennium. And when that day comes, King Charles will stand beside the seven-year-old coronation chair. And he will be presented to those that will be gathered in the abbey by the Archbishop of Canterbury. And when he is presented, the congregation that will be gathered there in the abbey will shout, God save the King. And when that happens, trumpets will sound. And following that, he will then be anointed and he will receive the crown of England. Once crowned, he will leave the coronation chair and he will move to the throne as all who watch will kneel to pay homage to him. Now, I describe that event because before us is a coronation that is before us in the text. But it is a coronation of a different kind. It is the coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ in what is called the triumphal entry. It is the only time that Jesus in the Gospels allowed a public recognition of His Messiahship and His Kingship. And so, it is... As you will see, it is it stands in contrast to earthly coronations because it is missing all the symbols of worldly glory and greatness. There is no pageantry. There is no splendor. However, in both Luke and John's Gospel, He is hailed as the King. It is certainly implied in Matthew and Mark's Gospel who refer, refer to him as the descendant of David or the, or the son of David or receiving the kingdom of David. But when you come to the Gospel of Luke chapter 19, it is clear that the people of Israel wanted a Messiah king. And on Palm Sunday, the first day of the last week of our Lord's life prior to his death and resurrection, he arrives in the city of David, Jerusalem. This episode that we are going to walk through today, it's beautiful on numerous levels. Even though the people praise Him mostly driven by wrong motivations, it displays the irony of divine providence because He still enters intentionally in a blend of nobility and humility. For He knows that He is not a sovereign arriving to take a throne, but He is a Savior destined for a cross. And there's the twist. The twist is that the reason Jesus Christ is King and the reason He really should be hailed as blessed, honored, to be praised and worshipped by all is because of what will happen on the cross. So this morning... I wonder, will you cry out just as they did, but for the reasons that we understand what He did on the cross, 
will you cry out this key idea, blessed be the King who came to save us from our sin. Because that really is the reason we cry out, blessed be the King. Because our King came to save us from our sin. And there are three things that we see in this passage that illustrate or that describe His coronation in the triumphal entry that will help us come to the end of this service and cry out, blessed be the King who has saved us from our sins. We will look first at the preparation of the King. Then we will look to the procession of the King. And then we will observe the praise of the King. So let's look first at the preparation of the King. You come to verse 28, and what you see in verse 28, I want you to notice how he prepared to go to Jerusalem for this redemptive coronation. Notice in verse 28, the text says, and you have to look at your Bibles, it says, and when he had said these things, that is, finished his final teachings and final parables that he gave, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So in verse 28, Luke tells us that Jesus finishes his teaching and he went on ahead. Look at the wording. He went on ahead going up to the city. And so that phrasing there, he went on ahead, that he, he was going up to Jerusalem, that, that, that emphasis there is throughout Luke. In fact, Luke emphasizes that Jesus will go to Jerusalem nine times in his gospel. If you take your Bibles and you just flip back to Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, listen to what, Jesus, what the text says in Luke chapter 9. It says, And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, that is, when it drew near for him to be delivered into the hands of evil men, to be taken up and crucified to the cross, look what it says in, in chapter 9 verse 51. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Why did he set his face? Well, if you back up to verse, if you back up in chapter 9 of Luke and you go to verse 44, Jesus says to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of evil men. Well, they didn't understand fully. But Jesus knew what this would entail. And so when it comes to chapter 9, verse 51, He sets His face uh, toward Jerusalem with unstoppable resolve because He knows that He will suffer and die on the cross. So have you ever gone somewhere and set your face in that direction and then you just went straight ahead. Runners do that in baseball. They look ahead, they look at that base, and they run towards it. When we left Indiana and we moved to Ohio, I remember the last day that when we, the, all the, all the, all the vehicles were, 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 had been filled all the way up to the ceiling, and we got in those vehicles, and we got in those moving trucks, and we looked east, and we set our face there, and we left everything behind. It, it's that idea. When Jesus sets His face on Jerusalem, He has come to the point where nothing but the cross is ahead of them. And so when you come to Luke chapter 19, you have the last references to Jerusalem out of the nine. 
Jerusalem will be the final destiny of His earthly ministry. And the language conveys that not only is it His objective to go there, listen to this, it's His desire to go there. Don't you find that strange? It's His desire to go there. He wants to go to Jerusalem because it is His desire, His heart's desire to go there and suffer and die. He is fully dedicated to the mission of salvation that has given to Him by the Father before the world began. Jesus came to earth to do the will of Him who sent Me. John chapter 6, verse 38. And the will of Him who sent Him, that is the will of the Father, was for Jesus to what? Be an example for us to follow? No. He, the will of Him who sent Him was for Him to die for the sins of His people. And so His face was set in verse 28. And His feet now step in the direction of the city where He willing with full embrace of the suffering and the slaughter and the sorrow that will encompass Him in His final week. And He does this for you and for me. A desire to not only obey His Father, but a desire that is driven out of love for His people that He will save. And so the road, look at the text, the road, Luke tells us, then leads them near the villages of Bethphage and Bethany at Olivet, or the Mount of Olives. Look at verse 29. When He drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, He then sent two of the disciples ahead of Him. But what I want you to see here is is that the road leads to the Mount of Olives, which sits 3,000 feet above sea level overlooking the city of Jerusalem. So He will make a descent into the city. We'll pick back up on that in a minute. But in verse 30, what happens is He sends His disciples. He sends His disciples to prepare for His descent into the city. And His disciples go ahead of Him and they retrieve a donkey and her colt. Matthew's Gospel mentions both. Luke's Gospel just draws attention to the colt or the foal of the donkey. These specific instructions certainly display Christ's foreknowledge and His divine authority. All the Gospels indicate to us, all the Gospels indicate that Christ's foreknowledge is increasingly demonstrated the closer He gets to the cross. And so the Son of God knows beforehand, and I want you to get this, He knows beforehand what will happen. He's already predicted it, but it's also because His Father not only is with Him, but it is the Father who is directing every step of His foreordained path. And so when you come to verse 32, or verse 30, go into the village, there's the instructions in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied, on which no one has yet set. Untie it and bring it here. So he requests the colt to be brought to him. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying this? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So again, see his foreknowledge? He knows that the colt is there. And in his foreknowledge, the purpose of that colt is for him. 
so that he may descend into the city of Jerusalem. You come to verse 32. So those who were sent away, we don't know who they were, which disciples, but they went on. They went to the village and what did they find? They found just as he had told them, the colt tied. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. So notice what happens. The disciples, just as they were instructed, they obeyed. And the owners of the donkey and its colt asked, why do you need this colt? And they answered, the Lord needs it. Now here again, I want you to see, I want you to observe that Jesus exercises not only His foreknowledge of his, in His understanding of the events that are unfolding, but He also demonstrates His sovereignty over the owners of this cult and the cult Himself. And demonstrating His sovereignty, showing us that there is not a single moment of His life that is outside of the divine plan of redemption and the control of His Father who is in heaven. And the reason that is significant, because every step He takes, everything He does is on our behalf for our salvation. And so He secures the colt. And when He secures the colt, we see that the colt really is the kind of the, the center character here. And to understand the full meaning of the colt, you have to look at Matthew chapter 21. And I'll let Matthew's gospel fill us in. Why does he ask for the colt? Matthew, or the, the donkey, the foal of the donkey? Matthew 21 verse 4 and 5 says this. This took place. That is, Jesus told the disciples to get the colt of the donkey so that what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So if we take Luke's Gospel and we take Matthew's Gospel and we combine the narratives synoptically, what we see is, is that Jesus will go to the holy city of David as the promised Messiah King of the Old Testament to directly fulfill what the prophet Zechariah said hundreds of years before this took place. And what Zechariah was prophesying is that the Messiah would not arrive riding a noble horse as a monarch would, but instead the Messiah would come on the colt of a donkey, demonstrating that He is not like any other king that we would expect. And certainly Jesus is not like any king that we would expect. I mean, this entrance into Jerusalem is very similar to even His birth in humble circumstances. He's born on the Virgin Mary. He's born into impoverished conditions. He is surrounded not by the elite of society in His birth, but He is, su he is surrounded by shepherds and common people. And here as he enters into Jerusalem, we see that the king of the world rides in divine humility on a donkey to save sinners. And when he arrives, he is not wielding a sword in order to crush his enemies, but he comes to submit himself to the sword of God's judgment that will fall upon him at the cross. 
There is no pomp and there is no circumstance here. There is no grandeur and there is no glory. Instead, the way He enters into this city is fitting to the very way He describes Himself. Come to Me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and My burden is light. And why does He say that? Because He is meek and lowly at heart. This is our meek and lowly Savior who could have come into Jerusalem with the sword of judgment, but instead comes on a donkey to accomplish our salvation. And so, as He enters into the city, we see the truth declared for us is this. Blessed be the King who came to save us with His perfect humility. That's what, the, that's what this entrance demonstrates. He has humbled Himself already. And He has, become, he, he has taken on flesh. And taken on the form of a servant. Every heartbeat, every step of His life is a demonstration of His divine humility and condescension to come from the throne of heaven to the dusty paths of this world to go to a cross and die for us. You see, that is those preparations of the King demonstrate that we bless His name because He humbled Himself to go into Jerusalem for us. But there's a second theme that I want you to see. I want you to see not only the preparations that He made, and all the ways He demonstrated His foreknowledge, all the ways He demonstrated His authority, the way He displayed His humility as the Son of God. But I want you to notice then the procession of the King. Look at verse 35. And they brought it, that is, they brought the colt to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Right here begins the procession. Again, no, no royal carriage, no parade to the streets, Instead, he's followed by, by dignitaries. Instead, he's followed by 12 disciples. One will betray him. Another will deny him. And by the time you get to the end of the week, all of them will disappear from him. And so the procession begins. And they set him on the throne. And the word set is a word that conveys enthronement. In other words, here's what you have happening here. The prophetic symbolism of the cult becomes visual reality. Imagine you're there and you're seeing him as he's descending from Mount, uh, uh, descending down the Mount of Olives. Not since Solomon had Israel beheld such a sight. When David installed him as the king in order to subvert a, a, to subvert his other son who was trying to take the throne by force, he sent Solomon on a donkey to demonstrate peace. So, so there's no doubt that, that as they're watching that this royal connection probably didn't go unnoticed. But the language of them sitting him on the donkey, and it, it conveys enthronement. He had divine rights to claim David's throne. That was made known to Mary when the angel announced her conception and that she would give birth to the son of David. 
And it should be noted as well that in verse 37, look at the way the text reads. Jumping ahead, as he was drawing near, he's, he's making his procession already. And, and I love the way Luke phrases this. On the way down the Mount of Olives. Now do you know why I bring attention to that? It will bring attention to that because this mountain is mentioned by the prophets and it, it, that the glory of the Lord will one day appear on the Mount of Olives when the Son of Man appears. But at this moment in history, the Son of Man is descending the mountain in humiliation, marching toward the cross. But here's what I want you to get. Luke mentions the Mount of Olives in the book of Acts after the resurrection. And so what's interesting is, in this text, he descends the mountain on a colt. But in Acts chapter 1, he ascends into heaven on a cloud. Because the first time he comes, he comes in submission to the will of the Father to achieve our redemption. And the next time he's on the mountain, he is ascending the mountain, and he is ascending all the way back up to the throne of heaven because he will accomplish our salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection. So the son that is enthroned on the donkey will soon be the son who will be enthroned in heaven after His work of redemption is accomplished. And as He descends the mountain, notice what happens. The crowds begin to gather. So back it up to verse 35. So they brought, they brought it to Him, and they threw the cloaks on the colt. They set Him on it, mounted Him on it. And as He rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. But what I want you to see here is that the crowds of people now begin to press in. And there would have been large crowds gathered because this is the people are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate and observe the Passover feast. And so notice what the crowds do. They do two things. One, the people spread their cloaks in submission. Luke's Gospel specifically zeroes in on that. Citizens would often throw their coats and garments before a king so that the king on his steed or whatever would ride over their cloaks and garments. It symbolized honor and respect as well as signaling submission to his authority. Now, there's an irony here. In a sense, it is a rolling out of the red carpet. You see that in, in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. But what you need to pay attention to is while the attitude is correct, the motive is actually wrong. We'll get to the motive in a minute. But the attitude at least reflects the heart of every person when it comes to Christ. We should be in an attitude of full submission and subjection to His Lordship. I mean, that's what they're doing here when they throw the cloaks down. But the second thing they do is the people cut palm branches in symbolism. So they spread their cloaks in submission and then they, spread, they cut palm branches in symbolism. Matthew's Gospel says this, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, palm branches 
were symbols of victory. And they were used to celebrate conquerors. And so it is very clear that the people here envision Jesus to be a Savior. Particularly, they hope Him to be their political Savior. And there is an expectation that the Messiah would deliver them. And that expectation is now sweeping through the crowd. And that's where they begin to cry out. But why not? I mean, why shouldn't they in some sense expect, if that's what they're expecting, if they're expecting a political savior, I mean, it would make sense that they're getting riled up because what they're hoping is that this is the moment that he will come. What they expected, I have no idea. But what they certainly anticipated was that he would somehow overthrow the Roman Empire. The Roman occupation, I should say. I mean, he, he did have supernatural power. They saw and witnessed that. Additionally, this would be perfect timing for the Messiah to deliver them from Rome. It's Passover, right? The celebration of Israel's deliverance from Egyptian bondage. And so the crowd, with all of this going into their heads, I mean, the crowd gets electrified with excitement, anticipating the Messiah's mission being an earthly one, a political one. But here's the question. Was that really the mission of the Messiah? And the answer is no. Jesus rode into the city on a divine mission. He did not come to conquer Rome, but to be crucified on a Roman cross. And here's the irony. It's Passover, right? And so while Jesus is descending into the city, all of these thousands of people who are gathering into the city, do you know what they're bringing into the city? They're bringing lambs. They're bringing lambs to be sacrificed. But what they don't see and what the religious leaders refuse to see is the reality that the one that is entering into that city would be the final Passover lamb and that he would go to the cross and through his sacrifice he would die for the sins of his people and open a way for sinners to be able to come to God and receive salvation. And here's the thing, here's what, and I really want to emphasize this. He did not come to make war on earth. He came to make peace between God and sinners. And this procession that Jesus is on, even though the people don't fully see it, even the disciples don't fully see it yet, they won't see it fully until after the resurrection. But, but here, here, get this, this is so good. This procession was Jesus' royal ride for our redemption. They didn't know it, but He did. And in that sense, there was a joy even in Him that day. A joy that foreshadowed the great joy of the salvation that He would achieve for us. Isn't that what the writer of Hebrews says? That He endured the cross despising the shame. For why? For the joy that was set before Him. He can receive the praise of these people knowing that what it foreshadows is the praise of the people that He will redeem from every tribe, from every nation, and from every tongue who will cry out, worthy is the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. And so it really is a joyous moment 
despite the darkening storm clouds that are coming over in the week ahead. And so here we observe with clarity, Jesus is completely aware of what is coming. Yet, He rides on. He rides on. He willingly proceeds. He receives the honor of the people because this much was true. He is the Messiah on a true mission, a mission of submission and obedience to the Father. And the triumphal entry is the victory, celebration of His active obedience as Christ moves toward Calvary in love for God and passion for us. So ask yourself, why does He march on? Why does He continue to ride? Why does He go on into the city? That's where we need to personalize our salvation. He rides on for His people that He will redeem. Philippians 2.8, being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient. Obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. But His whole life is a life of full obedience and surrender to the will of the Father. And so church, we cry out, blessed be the King. Because He is the King who came to save us through His perfect humility. But we cry out, blessed be the King who rides into the city on a divine mission for our salvation. So let's not just get caught up in the pageantry of thinking about Palm Sunday, but let us remember together collectively that He went into Jerusalem for us. For us. Which leads us to the final observation. We've seen the, we've seen the preparations of the King. We've seen the procession of the King. But notice in verse 37, we have then the praise of the King. Look what the text says. The text says, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all all the mighty works that they had seen. And so even there, there's, there's total lack of clarity here. They had seen his mighty works. They had seen the things that he had done, the miracles that he performed. And so there's, again, this recognition, he's got to be the Messiah. But look at verse 38 saying, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So notice in the praise of the King that the whole multitude of His disciples begin to rejoice and praise God for His mighty works. And what they are singing is what we read in the very beginning for a call to worship. Psalm 118, which was the song sang that they would sing at the Passover, sung at the Passover feast. And here we see the Messianic hopes on clear display as they acknowledge Jesus to be the Messiah King. Matthew's Gospel fills in what Luke doesn't give us. Matthew 21, verse 9, Hosanna, this is what they were crying out, Hosanna to the highest, to the the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now do you know what the word Hosanna means? Hosanna means save us now or save now. Now piece this together. The crowd hails Jesus as the king who comes in Yahweh's name, 
promised by the prophets of the Old Testament, the true Messiah, they had the right words. And even they had the right attitude. But they had the entirely, they had the wrong confession in their heart. And the reason we know that is because in just a matter of days, they will go from crying out, crown Him, to crucify Him. So observe, there are three, there, there are three forms of praise here. There are those who wrongly worship. What kind of salvation do they expect? Well, we've already covered that. But let's just, let's dig into that, right? We, we talked about the political aspect. They wanted him to re- save them from the oppression of the Roman government. They expected salvation on their terms. And they sought a savior of their own making. They wanted a political savior. And in this case, one who would overthrow Rome, bring peace to Jerusalem. And without doubt, Rome was oppressive and cruel. But Rome was not their greatest enemy. The greatest enemy is sin. And Christ came to save His people from their sins. Isaiah 53. And what that does is it parallels to us today. Because there are people who have wrong perceptions of Jesus. And wrong expectations of Jesus. I think some of the problem comes often in the way that we present the gospel. People desire Jesus or Jesus is presented as a means to some other end. Listen to me. A means to another end. Get Jesus or I want Jesus because I want my problems to be solved. I want my health to be restored. I want our freedoms to be preserved. I want my marriage to be fixed. I want to live a prosperous, happy life. People want those things, and then hirelings come along, and they they basically take the Gospel, and they prop it out there, and put Jesus as a hoop you jump through, and you can get any of those things. People today, in our moment, want a Jesus who is a life coach. A therapist who will make them happy, not holy. Who will help them discover their true self rather than die to themselves and embrace Him as the Savior and King. They want a Jesus who will satisfy their selfish cravings, their worldly expectation, a Christ who will help those who help themselves. But listen, that didn't work then and it doesn't work now. The Gospel of Palm Sunday is this, Jesus saved me and save me now. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sins. That's the Gospel. That's what they should have been crying out. That's what they should have seen. And when we realize that Jesus is the Savior who came to save us from our sins, and we are broken over our rebellion and our sinfulness, and we are broken over the reality that we cannot save ourselves, that government cannot save us, that thing possessions cannot save us. Human wisdom cannot save us. Education cannot save us. Only Christ can save us. And when the heart is broken open to realize the, our own sinfulness, we are then able to see that this One who has come from heaven, this King of glory who has arrived in the city of Jerusalem, He alone is the One who can save us. 
And then we are able to worship Him. Not for what He can give us, but for who He is. Jesus Christ is the Savior. He is the Lord. And whether you and I get any good thing from Him, He is worthy of our worship and our praise. And see, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, He brings salvation on His terms. He came to bring true peace with God. And He invites all those who are burdened with trying to save themselves to come to Him on His terms to find salvation and discover the true joy of loving and worshiping Him forever. Don't be like those who worship wrongly on that day. But don't be like those who didn't worship at all. Look at verse 39 real quickly. Look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. There is the message of religion. Religion will not have a Christ who saves. Because religion offers the idea that you can save yourself. And so they rebuke him. And all of their pride, they're angered. Do you see this? They're angered by the adoration given to Jesus. Even though the people will soon cry out, crucify him. In this moment, the religious leaders are infuriated. And like many today, they would not give him the praise of which he is worthy. And let me tell you, friend, the entire mission of the devil and the entire goal of religion is to get your focus and attention away from Christ and on anything and anyone else to get us all in, in, to get us all entangled in all the uh, all the debates and all the other things that are out here and, and to get our minds off of Christ and who he is and the message of salvation he does not want Christ to be king and to be worshiped and to be praised and so the pharisees failed to worship at all. But then look at, the, look at the final thing. Those who will worship Christ. Now Jesus' response is incredibly powerful. Look what He says. He answered, I tell you, <laughs> if these were silent, <laughs> the very stones would cry out. Do you know why? Because creation groans beneath the curse and weight of sin. If the disciples stop praising God for the arrival of His Son, the stones would take their place. And not only would they cry out praise to the One who has come from heaven to save sinners and redeem creation, the stones themselves would cry out judgment upon those who reject Him. And the reason is simple. The reason is simple. Because that, He, is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the once and future King who will reign forever. He is the seed of the woman. He is the Son of David. He is the Son of God who will reign forever and ever. He is the promise of the prophets 
He is the one who wrapped Himself in flesh. He is the one riding on that donkey. And He is the one who will head to the cross. And He will die on that cross. He will be crushed beneath the weight of the wrath of God. And on the third day, He will rise again victorious of death, hell, and the grave. That is why even the stones will cry out and worship Him. And so... He is the King who has come to conquer an enemy far greater than Rome. A King who will conquer our sin and crush death forever. And because of that, He is worthy to be worshipped then. And He is worthy to be worshipped now. And you, friend, know what they did not know when He came into that city. You know, if you're a believer, that He is the King. And your heart swells with love for Him. And if you're here today and you've never been saved, and you've been sitting on the fence of indecision, you now know that He is the King. And He will not let you sit on the fence of indecision. He calls you to worship Him. And you will be held accountable for what you know. So will you today bless the King? Will you cry out, blessed be the King who is worthy of all praise and worship forever? So we've seen the preparations of the King. We've seen the procession of the King. We've seen the praise of the King. And I go back to May 6th. Charles III will be coronated as king. And the people on that day will cry out, God save the king. But he is a mortal king. And though only God can save him, he can save no one. But the church of Jesus Christ, we declare, blessed be the true king. Blessed be the true king who came to save us who rode in beautiful humility on the back of a donkey to rescue us from our sin through His death and resurrection. Oh, what a Savior! Now enthroned in heaven, He is strong enough to defeat every enemy, and He is gentle enough to rescue all of His people from their sins. And He alone is worthy to be worshipped. Will you today cry out, Blessed be the King. Because He humbled Himself to be the Messiah. Will you bless the King who rode into Jerusalem to die for your sins? Will you bless the King who alone can save you and satisfy you forever? If you want to be saved, today call out to save Him. And believer, whatever it is in our life, may we in full surrender say to Him, Blessed be the King. Here I am. Whatever you would have me do, I want to do it today. That should be the prayer and cry of our heart. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your holy and inspired Word. Thank You that the King came from heaven and that on the cross He died for our sins. Thank You that He descended into that city willingly to be our substitute. Thank You that He is now ascended into heaven and that He has accomplished our salvation. 
I pray now, Spirit of God, that You would do Your work in our heart. If there's one here who's never been saved, just been sitting and, 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 and listening and staying on the outskirts of decision, that today they will cry out, save me now. That they will have the courage to ask You to save them and Anyone in this room who needs to come and to pray or to make a decision about their life and surrender to You, that today will be their day. Thank You for the King who came. And thank You for the salvation that He has brought to us. In His name, Amen.